Chris, you know what'll never let you down? What? A distracted belayer at the rock climbing gym. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. You know what else? No, what? The game Best Fiends. It's got your back, day and night, ready to give your brain a refreshing challenge that'll leave it feeling like it just rolled a natural 20. Yeah, whatever that means. Play the game that always has something new to do. Download the five-star rated puzzle game Best Fiends, free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. This week on Myths and Legends, it's a samurai team-up to defeat the worst demon Japan has ever known. We'll see samurai arts and crafts time, and how, if you're dining with demons, you want to make sure those finger foods aren't actually fingers. The creature this week is Goliath's great-great-great-grandson, a governor really in need of a dentist. This is Myths and Legends, episode 223B, Dinner Party. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Last week on the podcast, we met Raiko, a legendary samurai leader, Watanabe no Suna, a well-regarded samurai in his own right, who got and lost a demon arm from an oni at the gate, and Kentaro, the golden boy, a jacked eight-year-old who was taken to Kyoto and trained to be a samurai. Years after Kentaro was taken in, Raiko and Watanabe went off on a hunt for a monster spider, and upon returning successful to Kyoto, they learned that a serial killer was on the loose, and that young women around the city had been kidnapped, never to return. We're not going to jump in with the samurai, but we're going back a few hundred years to a priest who has a difficult student. In a mountain temple, a priest was frustrated. You're drunk again, the priest said, setting down the sutra. You're drunk again, the ten-year-old acolyte rejoined, and then he chortled. Yeah, take that. The priest groaned. If the boy didn't start taking this seriously, then what? The boy interrupted. He might not learn the sutras. He closed the book and proceeded, to the priest's astonishment, to rattle them off from memory. Drunk. The priest stood. Well then, it looked like they were done for today. He faced the acolyte straight on. Try to temper your enjoyment at the festival and don't ever come to a lesson drunk again. Or what? The boy asked, standing and glaring at the man. Did the priest know who his father was? Do you, you little drunken demon? The priest cut back, turning to leave the boy staring at the floor, his tears obscured by his bowl cut. The boy had meant to say grandfather. The boy had no idea who his father was. When the priest was gone, the boy rushed to his chamber, pulled up a loose board, and guzzled the wine he had stashed below. He had been left there, at this mountain temple, when he was just a baby. He was smarter than most, smarter than all, actually. And when he was old enough, he pieced together the identity of his mother, and then his grandfather. The old man was a magistrate, a servant of the emperor himself. As for his mother, he didn't know. Had she been a kind girl? taken in by the honeyed words of a stranger, then abandoned? 
Were his parents star-crossed lovers kept apart by a grandfather's ambition and shame? Question after question remained unanswered. All the boy knew was that he was here, alone. One time, he tried to get away. He'd snuck out and down the mountain and found his grandfather's estate. But the old man had treated him like some urchin begging for money. The girl, his mother, had only stood there, eyes downcast. On that day, he'd learned that his life was a shameful secret kept from the world. In that moment, he'd realized that he was truly alone. He took a deep swig of wine and threw the book at the wall. At least he had the sutras. He rolled his eyes. He'd never asked for this life. He'd been tossed into it. Sure, he was good at it. He could talk circles around the priests. The priests that knew his story that looked on him with disdain. They hated him almost as much as the old man did, which was almost as much as he hated himself. The boy rolled back, flat on the floor, as the wine began taking hold. His head swam in blissful oblivion, free from responsibility, free from thought, free from pain. Outside and down the mountain, music broke the silence, and the boy shot up straight. The carnival! He had almost forgotten. He downed the rest of the bottle, staggered from his room, and tiptoed down the hallway. Sure, he'd stumbled half a dozen times, but the priests had long since given up trying to rein him in. It was easier to let the kids self-destruct and pick up the pieces if there were any left. The boy pushed open the door and ran down the mountain toward the warmth and the lights of the festival. When he got down there, the party swallowed him whole. The sensations carried him through the plaza, from the pulse of the music to the sounds of laughter and song all melding together in the warm summer air. And he lost himself in the crowd. Then, somewhere amid the euphoria, came abrupt shouting. There was a fight, the dull thud of fist-pounding flesh. The people cheered, but the boy couldn't see. He saw only a mask skitter across the stones before him. It must be a mask torn off during the fight, he guessed. Whosever it was, they weren't coming back for it, because it remained on the ground, looking up at the sky. The boy felt drawn to it. And, as he stared, everyone else melted away, until it seemed as though he were the only one there. He stepped closer. The mask was that of a red oni, a demon. Its teeth curled up at the edges and horns grew from the red, shaggy hair. Its eyes were yellow and fiery in its mouth. Its mouth was always smiling. A chill ran down his spine as he picked up the mask. The eyes stared back at him. He didn't know how to explain it, but looking into the face of that demon, it felt as though he held a mirror. He donned the mask, and for the first time in his young life, no longer felt the need to hide to be someone he wasn't. No longer would he fake it. He was now himself. As the eyes in the mask began to move in sync with the boys, the face remained smiling. The edges began to melt into the boy's skin. The red fur blurred the line between where the demon ended and the human began.
few hundred years later, back in the present day of our story, Kunitaka wept before the seer and fortune teller. He said his daughter, his only child, a girl of 13, was kidnapped. He feared the worst. This girl was his light. Oh, to have his daughter back. He was an old friend of the emperor, so he was rich enough to actually have two servants follow his daughter down the stairs in the event that the wind blew and she fell. Kunitaka, the father, heard of the seer's abilities. He needed help. The seer fumbled around with his documents. The fates were murky, you know? There were too many disturbances in the foot. The seer was cut off by multiple servants carting in, quote, tens of thousands of coins to put them in front of the seer. The seer nodded. Oh, wow. You know, it was amazing how things cleared up just now. He was getting something now. Yep, yep, he could see it. Demons. She was kidnapped by Oni. Good thing she's alive. For now. The magistrate, Kunitaka, bowed low, thanking the seer. How? Why did this happen? Why take his daughter? Why not him? The seer said, uh, I mean, the demons had reasons for taking girls. Let's not dive too deep into that. But why did they take his girl? Had the magistrate made a promise to a goddess so he and his wife could have a child and then not fulfilled that promise when they had the child? The magistrate looked away awkwardly. Yeah, don't. Don't do that, the seer said, trying to figure out how he was going to get his new Scrooge McDuck swimming pool out of this magistrate's villa. Could he maybe buy the villa now? Was that an option? Regardless, he told the man to relax, make some sacrifices to the goddess he had promised for the birth of his daughter, and she would be returned to him. That's it? That's it, the seer replied. Also, could he get like a wheelbarrow or something to start moving some of these coins out of here? Wearing that, Wantanabe said to Kentaro, who was standing there in a red leotard. Yeah, why wouldn't I? Kentaro replied with a smirk and an eye roll. If old man Wantanabe looked this good, he'd be walking around in a leotard too. Besides, Kentaro had been wearing this since he was eight. That explains why Golden Boy is stitched on the front of it, Wantanabe said. Let it go, let it go, the other samurai. Sadamitsu said, putting his hand on Watanabe's shoulder. They've been trying to get Kentaro to change his clothes for years. But no dice. It was either this or naked for him. The kid said he didn't even need armor, and yeah, he didn't. They're not sure what would happen if Kentaro was ever hit, but it hadn't happened yet. Just let it go. It's just, this is the Imperial Palace. This is a big deal, Watanabe said as they entered the palace. Kentaro looking good as always, the emperor's man said to Kentaro, the giant 18-year-old in a leotard. <laughs> the man nodded. At least stop flexing, Wantanabe said under his breath. I'm not flexing, I always look like this, the giant young man whispered. He was, though. They were quieted by the emperor's man. Your mission, if you choose to accept it, and you will because this is feudal Japan and the emperor is telling you to do this, is to go to Mount Oe of the Tamba province. Kill the demons living there and bring back the captives, should any yet survive, the emperor's servant said. 
and dismiss Raiko and his lieutenants. Raiko and his four or five samurai, depending on the sources, bowed and left the palace. As they walked back to Raiko's home, Raiko said that they should talk strategy. The men looked at him. What strategy? They were samurai? They would just walk up to the gates, challenge the demons? The demons would die? Done and done? Raiko turned around, stopping the men. You're going to climb an unclimbable mountain. And what of the demons? They're shapeshifters. As soon as they see you coming, they'll be dust in the wind, and not in the classic rock contemplate your own mortality way, but literal dust in the literal wind. They'll get away, lie low for a few weeks, and show up somewhere else. We know where they are, but we can't just run up and challenge them directly. We need to be smart about this. Which means... Raiko paused, looking to Kentaro. You're finally going to have to change out of that leotard. Their plan was that they would play the part of mountain aesthetics, monks or priests wandering through. Not an uncommon sight for someone living in the mountains, and definitely less threatening than five samurai. So the samurai got to work. Planning their attack, sure, but also sewing. The story says that the samurai prepared their own attire, and panniers, or bags, in which they could hide their weapons until the time was right. Now, they probably had servants to do all this, but I like to picture them all sitting around a table, needle and thread in hand, asking for their thoughts on cut and fit, and Kentaro trying on his skin-tight robes, really give his biceps room to shine, before being forced to throw his out and start over. Finally, though, the five men, the five greatest samurai in Kyoto, and possibly Japan at the time, started on their journey west to the Tamba province. They told the servants of the emperor that they will be back in no time. Well, we're lost, Watanabe said, folding up the map. Raiko sneered. Preposterous. They were samurai. They couldn't be lost. Watanabe said that that was actually a pretty common thing among experts, where, because someone is an expert in one subject, they think it makes them an expert in other, unrelated areas as well, like samurai, trying to be wilderness explorers. It had a name. What was that again? Ultracrepidarianism, Kintaro said, offhandedly, and then looked up to the rest of the group, staring at him, a, a little stunned. What? The giant man-child, golden boy, asked. He worked out every part of his body. And the brain, he smirked. The brain was the most important muscle of all. Want to not be turned back to Raiko, the leader. Well, the brain's an organ, but he's right about the term. Raiko was distracted, studying a nearby cave. He waved his hands, and his retainers followed. Watanabe, what are these pitiful creatures? He said, studying the forms, sitting by a fire. Were peasants? The men replied, looking at Raiko, who stood stone-faced. They turned to Watanabe. He can hear us, right? Raiko, they're peasants, Watanabe said. Also, they're not going to bow to you because we are humble mountain priests. Remember? Raiko smiled. Oh yes, that's right. We are that. 
no need to cut off their heads for disrespect, which was his actual legal right as a samurai in this time. The three peasants chuckled nervously. <laughs> what? Also, they have food and we don't, so I'm going to join them, Watanabe said, asking if he could join the peasants around their fire in the cave. The three peasants were also from Kyoto and watched their words around the obvious samurai in their midst. The secret mission being secret, the one to rescue the captives, the men didn't know about it. They were sick of the demons taking their wives and daughters. So they set out to make things right. They actually left a few days after the samurai, but because of their superior tracking and hunting skills, they quickly found the lair and scouted the only way up. They also pieced together the lead demon's identity from local lore. He was known as Shuten Doji. The drunken demon, Raiko said with a nod. The peasants nodded too. Yes, that's what his name means in Japanese, the language we are all speaking right now. Raiko took over. The drunken demon. He should have been contained. He was contained. Years ago, a demon attacked a mountain temple, stabbing the monks and burning the sutras. No one knows how he made it in the temple or why he chose to do so, but everyone was accounted for. Everyone was killed, except a young acolyte who disappeared. A powerful monk was dispatched to deal with Shuten Doji, and for years, the monster had been contained. Something must have happened. Shuten Doji must be behind the recent abductions in Kyoto. The peasants nodded. Oh, wow, so exactly what they just said. Cool. Reiko rose. He had something to reveal to his hosts. He hadn't been truthful. He was actually a samurai warrior and a magistrate, not this super convincing mountain priest he appeared to be. The peasants looked at each other. What? No way. Raiko smirked back at Watanabe. Master of disguise. Yet another area he was an expert in. The men produced a bottle of sake, and Kentaro raised his own cup. He was good, thanks. Like me, packing all the bullets in Oregon Trail too, to the detriment of everything else, the samurai had ensured that they had sake for days. But the peasant men said that it wasn't for them to drink. It was for him, Shuten Doji. It had come from the locals. The people were sick of the demon, and when they learned that three peasant heroes had come from Kyoto to liberate them, they gifted them this rare weapon, a divine elixir they had poured at great cost from a temple in the west to use against the giant, hairy demon. If the demons drank it, they would lose their ability to fly and become disoriented. But if a human drank it, it was just normal sake. The fortress was unassailable, but in their days here, the three peasants had found the only way in for someone who wasn't a flying demon. Seeing as they were ridiculously out of their depth, and the samurai weren't, they would gladly gift them the magical sake and show them the way in. At this, Raiko, the lead samurai, faced the peasants and bowed. The peasants and the other samurai sat stunned. Raiko turned to his troop and hissed that these were no mere peasants. These were the deities of the temples they had visited when they left Kyoto. The three men looked at the samurai. So, because they did this and a peasant couldn't do great things in the samurai's mind, logically it followed that they must be deities not guys who wanted to help out their communities and get their family members back. The five samurai looked up. Oh. The peasants all cracked up. Nah, they were just messing with the samurai. A peasant doing all this? Please. 
This was still written in the 1700s. Yes, of course they were deities. Feel free to continue killing peasants, artisans, and merchants with impunity at the slightest perception of disrespect, an historical fact about which we are not exaggerating. The samurai wiped their brow. Whew, the status quo remains intact. When they arrived at the entry, the deities pointed up at the cave. 30 meters, follow the stream, and they would find a girl washing by a subterranean river. The girl would show them the rest of the way. The samurai thanked the deities, Raiko putting the sake into his pack, and together the five warriors made their way up into the darkness. We'll see what happens when our heroes arrive at the Oni's lair, but that will be right after this. The deities were right. It was only a short climb until they arrived at the girl cleaning blood from her clothes in a mountain river. The girl was one of the captives from Kyoto, one of the only 10 that still remained. The demons kept them around as servants, but when they tired of one, or got hungry for a snack, or wanted to drink their blood sake, i.e. just drink the girl's blood, they killed one, wrung her out, one translation informs us, and made the others wash her clothes. The samurai in disguise told the girl that they were, in fact, samurai in disguise, and everyone broke down crying. Once everyone cried it out together, the samurai wiped their eyes on their sleeves. Ah, that felt good. Now, the samurai believed some exposition was in order. The girl shuddered with the thought of what laid ahead, but told them, at the end of this cave that snaked along the mountain river, there was a gate. It was called the Iron Gate. It was a gate made of iron, pretty self-explanatory. The samurai should find their way through by any means possible, stealth or combat, and get past it to see the Iron Palace. It was an impressive place, with iron walls, azure roofs, and bejeweled screens. At night, the girls were summoned to serve the demons. There were four lieutenants who guarded the entrance to the living quarters. Star Bear Demon, Bear Demon, Tiger Bear Demon, and Iron Demon. They were, quote, powerful beyond mortal comprehension. But the most powerful of all was Shuten Doji, the drunken demon. During the day, he was like a young man with fire truck red skin and a disheveled bowl cut the hairstyle of a child. Big back in the day, Watanabe said, in an aside comment to Kentaro. JTT had one, Devon Sawa, it was huge. I tried it out too. Never really worked for my head shape. Kentaro just shrugged. Watanabe's references to 90s teen stars eluded him. Ah, before your time. The girl continued. At night, the demon transformed. He was 10 feet tall, hairy, toothy, and smiling. Always smiling. The men thanked the girl and told her to act normally, return to the Iron Palace when she was finished washing. They couldn't have the demons being alerted to anything having changed. But she need not worry. Tonight, she would be freed. The girl's shoulders slumped at the thought of returning to the palace, but it made sense. If the samurai succeeded, she would be free. If they failed, she couldn't run anyway. The demons would find her, 
and someone would be washing her clothes by the river tomorrow. She agreed, and the samurai left. I hate this job. I hate it, Demon 1 said as he looked out into the darkness of the cave. Demon 2 pinched the bridge of his nose. Oh my gosh, not this again. I hate it. I am wasting my evil life. There is one entrance accessible by the humans, and it's through a winding cave at the top of a mountain. No one approaches because five of the most powerful demons in existence party here, but even if they did, no army could attack without being massacred. We don't need to be here. Demon 2 said that someone needed to watch the gate. It was a stable job, just appreciate that he could go somewhere, get paid, clock out, and not have to think about it for like 12 hours. There was a long silence. So, I signed up for classes at the community college, Demon 1 said. Demon 2 looked out into the darkness, as he'd been doing every night for the last 30 years. I'm going to be an evil veterinarian, Demon 1 continued. Demon 2 turned. Seriously? Did he know how competitive vet school was? Also, evil veterinarians? Not a thing. I'm going to cure the animals and then eat them, Demon 1 said. He had given this a lot of thought. Oh, look alive. Something looked alive out there. Five humans, five mountain priests with kind of large and poorly sewed packs, approached. Demon 2 rubbed his clawed hands together. Oh yeah, humans. They weren't invited to the banquets upstairs, so they hadn't eaten human in months. Time to tear these guys to morsels, right? But there was silence from Demon 1. Right? Demon 1 grimaced, it's just that the rules were that they call in all human sightings. And? Demon 2 replied. And I need a good letter of recommendation now. You're right. Veterinary school is super competitive. I'm sorry, I'm calling it in, Demon 1 said and blew his horn. Demon 1 made the right call because while they sometimes got a few lost travelers in the cave, they almost never had five mountain priests come their way. And Shuten Doji, the leader, was curious. He ordered the gate opened for the five priests and said he would send, like, a human leg to the guards tonight. Raiko and his samurai would never admit to being scared but they were humbled by the sheer number of demons. Raiko, and samurai like him, had been too successful. The demons had been pushed from even the forests surrounding civilization. Now, hundreds of faces looked out of the buildings as they passed. The demons had been packed together out in mountain lairs. Dangerous, desperate, and now, Shuten Doji had organized them. The samurai looked up at the sky. They were out of the caves now, and the palace stood before them at the peak of the mountain. The rain came down in sheets, and lightning cracked the sky above them. Then, the samurai were struck by the stench. They recoiled from the smell of rotting fish. When the doors flew open, Shuten Doji stood before them. He was wrapped in a checkered kimono, wearing a crimson hakama. His red skin was pale, and his black hair disheveled. He stood towering over the samurai, even in his human form, gripping an iron staff. His voice boomed past his sharp, hooked teeth. The mountain I live on is not an ordinary one. The boulders and rocks are towering, and the gorges are impassable, 
No one, bird or beast, can approach the summit. So, humans, how have you come here? Raiko bowed low. Had the demon ever heard of Enno Goyoja? Shuten Doji shook his head. Raiko nodded and continued. Long ago, a monk heard a noise outside of his temple. He emerged to see three demons, not attacking, but dying. They were wounded and starving. So Goyoja took them in. He fed them, healed them, and clothed them, not once betraying their trust. Those demons, named Goki, Zenki, and Aki, taught Goyoja their magic. And Goyoja, having met the great evil of the wilderness and finding it not unlike humanity, started up an order of his own where monks and priests would give demons food and compassion. As for these priests, Goyoja had been their master. They knew a bit of the magic he had learned, and they followed his teachings. Raiko said that it was auspicious that they had found their way here. It was fated. They were lost in the mountains and starving, but to stay a night under the same tree and drink from the same river is said to have been predestined in a previous life. All they had was a bottle of sake, but they would gladly share it with the demons. Shuten Doji looked down with a smirk. He had read of Enno Goyoja, of course, knew of the order, but wanted to hear about it from the priests. He didn't trust them, but they weren't of immediate harm. He waved a hand, turned, and entered his sanctum. The priests, Raiko and his men, were invited to follow. Would you like some sake? Shuten Doji asked the wandering priests. Kintaro was about to remind the demon that they had brought some sake of their own, but Raiko cut him off. That would be wonderful, thank you. When a goblet of human blood was placed before the samurai, they didn't alter their expressions. Raiko took the goblet and drank deep. Pass it, please, Shuten Doji said, gesturing down the line. Watanabe no Suna, Kintaro, Sadamitsu, and the other samurai all took a drink without hesitation or reaction. You have dined with demons before. Ah, speaking of dining, did they not have some appetizers? Where were the appetizers? Shuten Doji roared. Some oni scuttled in with the appetizers, a freshly cut human arm and human leg from one of the captives from Kyoto. You could say that this dinner cost an arm and a leg, <laughs> Shuten Doji said with a grin and he had the leg placed in front of Raiko, before yelling out to the demons to have it prepared for their guests. Raiko held up a hand, saying that that wouldn't be necessary. He took his short sword, his tanto, from his pack, and started flaying a bit of muscle on the leg. And what do you think of this meal? Shuten Doji asked, as he watched Raiko the priest gulp down human flesh. Thanks for asking. I hate it, Raiko said without emotion but it is part of their discipline to not reject any food given in compassion, even if it is not the desire of their hearts to eat it. A look flashed in the face of Shuten Doji. Everyone else, any other mountain priest who had wandered their way, had said that they loved it, asked for more, their voices trembling. They had all died. This priest told the truth. Shuten Doji looked the man over. An honest priest. He held up a hand, 
demanding that Raiko stop eating, apologizing for offering something disagreeable to the man. Shuten Doji said that he had been in many disagreeable positions where he had no control over his life. The priests handled it admirably. Shuten Doji barked for the demons to take the food away. When their place was clear, Raiko produced the bottle of sake that the deities had given him. Now that he had sampled Shuten Doji's food, he wanted the demons to try some of his. He popped open the bottle, and there were cups on the table. He poured himself a cup first, to drink and prove that it wasn't poison. Shuten Doji looked on him with a nod, and took a cup of his own, downing it. His eyes widened. Wow! So, after I found the mask and became myself, Shuten Doji said, gesturing to his red skin, I returned to the temple. You see, those monks were liars, not like you. I appreciate your honesty. Whatever I am, whatever I've become, I refuse to lie. Lying is fear, shame. Anyway, when I returned to the temple, I stabbed the monks in their beds. Those were the early days, Shuten Doji explained. They could live wild and free. But when Buddhism really took hold in Japan, monks started coming for Shuten Doji. Finally, one powerful monk imprisoned him. Unlike Shuten Doji, though, that monk was mortal. When he died, his magic died with him. Shuten Doji found a mountain temple, cleared it out, made a few modifications. He gestured to the iron walls in the back of the room. And here they are. Now, he takes what he wants from this world. He has beautiful women to accompany him each evening. He lived better than the heavenly guardians. But there was one man who concerned him. The reason he didn't go to Kyoto anymore. His eyes zeroed in on the lead priest. That man's name was Raiko, a powerful samurai. Even his retainers were powerful. One of Shuten Doji's generals, Ibaraki Doji, lost an arm to Watanabe no Suna at the Rashomon Gate. Shuten Doji looked at the priest and his four companions. Raiko, the famous samurai, also had four companions. Shuten Doji stood, iron rod in hand. Did the priests want to know what he thought? He thought that they were Raiko and his four lieutenants, come to murder him. The priests froze for a moment. And then all five of them, without missing a beat and all at the same time, started laughing. Shuten Doji was confused. What the, what did they think was so funny? He just accused them of being secret murderer assassins? Especially that big one that looked like he was poured into the robe he was wearing? Kentaro flexed instinctively, tearing the stitching just a little bit. The five priests said that one, gross, they were disgusted that they were resembled such creatures as these samurai who go around killing Oni, but two, kinda thank you that they could be mistaken for the five greatest warriors in all of Japan. Raiko drained his sake and then settled in at the table. It was the way of their order that, to save the life of both sentient and non-sentient beings, they would often be tasked with giving up their own lives. All things are transient. If the demon was hungry, he needed only to kill them and feast on their bodies. At least then, they would be able to provide some sustenance with their deaths. Shuten Doji raised his iron staff. Nice, all right. He was gonna do it. 
All right, get ready to die. He raised his staff. Huh? Ah, just messing with you. You guys are all right. Shuten Doji apologized. He was very drunk. The stuff was strong. He yelled out to his servants to pass the visitor's sake around. Everyone gets a drink. It's said that they hung out for a while longer. Shuten Doji living up to his name, getting further intoxicated, and also calling demons out to dance for him and the priests. Because nothing says fun and not awkward party like making your employees dance for your amusement. Entering into something of a medieval Japanese rap battle, Ishikuma Doji, the demon who got their arm cut off by Watanabe no Suna, started up a song about how people who lost their way from the capital became entrees to enjoy with sake. It wasn't subtle that they wanted to eat the priests, but it was historically part of the samurai tradition to study and compose poetry, often on the fly and in groups. So Watanabe no Suna quickly rejoined how spring would come to the cavern and wind would invite the flowers to fall, with the demons being the flowers and the priests being the wind. The meaning of that was as lost on the drunken demons as it was on the sober me, but the demons loved it. Finally, it was bedtime, and Shuten Doji whistled. Two young girls came, and he threw an arm around each. Grinning, he said he had some things to attend to, and he would see the priests tomorrow. The rest of the demons lasted about ten more minutes after the boss went to bed. The magical sake that the priests brought hit them hard, making them lethargic and clouding their judgment. I'm not sure if it was actually enchanted or just a strong drink, but it had the same effect. Inside the half hour, the room was snoring around them. Raiko and his retainers looked to each other and ducked into the shadows. When they emerged, they were in their armor tanto on their belts and katanas in their hands, ready for the fight of their lives. After walking over scores of passed out Oni and arriving at Shuten Doji's bedroom to find the demon, now a 20 foot tall hairy monster, asleep and chained to pillars, the samurai paused. Huh. That was really easy, Raiko said, sword unsheathed over the demon. The three deities they had met and kind of insulted in the cave before had entered the demon's lair and come to their aid. Inside the mountaintop temple was an iron room where Shuten Doji slept. The evil Muppet could let his hair down, kind of literally, and take his true form, the 20-foot-tall shaggy monster. The deities helped out the samurai by binding the monster and bending open the iron door. Shuten Doji's last bit of protection against the samurai he lived in fear of. Before Raiko entered the room, the deities held him back and presented him with a helmet. Put this on, but like on top of your other helmet. As the samurai strode in, Shuten Doji roared, straining in vain against his bonds. He looked up. Well, well, well. It seemed the priests were liars after all. Didn't come as a surprise to him. Priests. Samurai, the emperor, their world was built on lies. The demons, though, they never lied. Now, what were the samurai going to do? The samurai who had deceived their way into his home, who had pretended to be meek priests, who had eaten human flesh, who had their opponent bound on his own bed. How fair, how honorable. They had him, but it cost them everything. Everything about who they were. They weren't samurai. They were assassins. 
He, though, he never lied. He was always the same, always honest. Be real, samurai. He told them to cut him loose for an honorable fight. If they didn't, really? Who was the real demon here? The samurai looked at each other, and then back to Shuten Doji. They got that he was trying to high-road them, goad them into cutting him loose so they could fight him in a fair fight, but his message on integrity might carry a bit more water if, you know, he wasn't a murderous cannibal. So no, they would not be cutting him loose. Raiko looked to the other four with a nod, positioned at Shuten Doji's arms and legs, to dismember him in an instant. Well, worth a shot, the demon said with a sigh. The samurai struck down. When they hit, Shuten Doji roared loud enough that the earth trembled around him. He was dead. Almost. His head flew off and gnawed on Raiko's second helmet, which, without it, he would have died. Raiko swatted at it for a little bit, and eventually, the demon's life force left. He was dead. But the earthquake woke the rest of the demons, and they roused from their drunken slumber. Their king was dead. There was nothing for them now. He had given them a home here, a place where outcasts could be themselves. Sure, there was a lot more cannibalism and murder on this little island of misfit toys, but it had been their place in the world. The demons shouted that they would go down fighting. The samurai nodded as they stood outside the room. How praiseworthy. And they, the samurai, would have a chance to demonstrate their own skill. I don't care how many guys or bloodthirsty demons you have on your side, but if a group of warriors is outnumbered 100 to 1, and that's how they respond, run! But the demons did not run. They attacked. And the samurai? The story says that they summoned and employed every possible technique of military art that they practiced, and they drove the demons to a position of no escape before slaughtering nearly all of them. It was toward the end of the battle that an oni emerged, rising above the rest. Its body was red, but the left arm, the left arm was green, gray, like it was or had been dead for some time. Watanabe no Suna held his sword in front of him. He knew that demon. He turned to his friends. He had this one. Fifteen minutes later, the oni had Watanabe no Suna on the ground, its claw to his throat. Watanabe might have said that, no, wait, he didn't have this one, but he wasn't able to breathe. The thing about dueling surrounded by four samurai was that you were surrounded by four samurai. The oni raised its fist to take its revenge on Watanabe when that brief glimmer of victory froze on its face. And then said face tumbled toward the floor. The oni was finally dead. Watanabe rose, shaken. Raiko wiped his blade clean and sheathed it, nodding at his friend and retainer, and continuing on deeper into the compound. The samurai pressed on deeper into the house. The house was beautiful, but what it contained was horrible. Beautiful because of the bejeweled screens and meticulously decorated room. I guess the demons had good taste. But it was horrible because the demons, when they were finished with the humans they had eaten, tossed them to the ground discarding them so there were half-eaten, rotted bodies all the way down to skeletons littering the room of the mountain stronghold. And there were jars of pickled human remains because, while they might be cannibalistic monsters, they weren't wasteful. They found most of the captives alive, 
and capable of moving. One sad story involves the one who possessed the arm and leg Raiko had been served at dinner earlier. She lay dying, weeping, and begging the samurai to end her suffering, tell her parents what happened to her, and ask them to pray for her in the afterlife. When the captives were safely out of the room, Raiko performed that last act of mercy before rushing after them. The compound was all but abandoned as they ran through it. Raiko knew that the demons that flew from this place would give him and his samurai a lot of work to do over the next few months, but he had won a great victory here today. They ran out of the cave in the mountain grotto, the same one they had entered. The two guards were confused and blew their horns, and Kentaro turned around and shot an arrow, quieting them, and the one's dreams of becoming an evil veterinarian died with him. The story, wrapping up, is a simple one. They arrived at a nearby village and sent word to Kyoto that the captives had been liberated. The emperor sent covered litters for the girls, and Raiko, Watanabe no Suna, Kintaro, Sadamitsu, and the other guy we don't talk about very much, were called before the emperor himself to be honored among the entire empire. The feasts and the celebrations had been nice, but at the end of it, the five samurai met on their horses outside the gate. Raiko was now a governor, and the other four were set for life, but the motivations that had led them on such a quest now called them from a comfortable life in the capital. Raiko, from horseback, said that three of Shutendoji's generals had escaped in the chaos, and they still lurked in the wild places of Japan. They were rebuilding and it was up to these five samurai to make the world safe for people, noble and commoner alike. The five samurai looked to each other, nodded, and galloped off into the forest. That's where we'll leave the stories of the samurai this time. I'm fairly certain there are more in this series with these characters, but I will have to, you know, actually find them. If you'd like to support the show, there's still a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a cat carrier hoodie, a hoodie with a pouch at the bottom for carrying your cats, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of the show that won't give you even more cat hair on your clothes and isn't the equivalent of cinching up an animal known for its claws and teeth into your shirt check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is Angulafre of the Broken Teeth, a French giant. If, like nobody, you've ever wondered if Goliath, you know, the one that the Hebrew King David killed, ever had a wife and a family, well, wonder no more, because that answer is yes. Goliath's line apparently outlasted his people by about a thousand years, and in the 8th century AD, a spot opened up, guarding the newly conquered Jerusalem. The most recent in the line of Goliath, Angulafre of the Broken Teeth, applied and got the job. Additionally, he might have just declared himself governor, and who's going to stop him? He's a giant. We know the guy was 18 feet tall, with a face that was 3 feet wide. He had the strength of 30 men and wielded a mace, made from a 300-year-old oak tree. He wielded it, but he never seemed to use it because he learned something his ancestor never did, tact. 
He was chill, mild-mannered, and people loved having a giant governor who would protect them and look after them. He thought it important to have a giant's strength, but in poor taste to use it improperly. The only issue was when his daughter, also a giant, would pick up peasants, farmers, oxen, and carts, and take them home in her apron, thinking them to be dolls. He would chastise her and make her put the terrified people and animals back where she found them. I don't know how or when, but Angulafre of the Broken Teeth traveled to Italy at some point and leaned on the now-leaning Tower of Pisa, giving it its namesake. We also don't know how or why, but seeing an opportunity to do some crusading before it was a thing, the famous paladin Roland challenged Angulafre and killed him. No word on what happened to his daughter, so feasibly, someone of Goliath's line might still be out there. Let's just hope she really did learn that humans are not toys. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. All right, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. We all need a person, someone who can tell you, hey, there's broccoli in your teeth, which, thank you. Happy to. Your person can also challenge you when you need it. Like how Best Fiends is always there for you with a new puzzle challenge. It'll make your brain feel like, like it just mastered sourdough. Or like it just hit the first home run of the season. As a game, Best Fiends checks all the boxes for my brain. Solving fun puzzles, variety, strategy. It's actually way more challenging than I thought it would be. Oh, this is not your typical match three game. You've got a limited number of moves each level to defeat the slugs and clear special objects, maybe something seasonal, cupcakes or a certain color flower. But you're also looking for keys and things to evolve your characters. That helps a lot. And since they add levels, events, and extra challenges all the time to their literal thousands of levels, there's always something new to play. Play the game that's there for you, day and night. Just don't be surprised when you can't put it down. Download the five-star rated puzzle game Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, best fiends.